Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 108 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and what matters on this episode is the fittingly surreal 2020 Masters, played in November without fans on a golf course presented as it's never been seen before, all neatly capped off by a tournament scoring record and tears from a player most of us frankly weren't sure even experienced normal human emotions. It truly was one for the ages, and aside from the always astute analysis of co-hosts Jeff Shackleford and Mike Clayton, we're going to get an insider's look when Lucas Michelle completes the box set of the World's Golf Podcast by joining us from quarantine in Sydney, where he finally managed to return after some COVID-related airline shenanigans. Luke is coming up in just a moment, but first, to the US, and an onlooker from the outside for the first time, well, in as long as I think I've known you, Jeff Shackelford, author, analyst, and course architect. How long since you watched the Masters from the couch rather than the course? Uh, I want to say since, I think, 2010 was the last one I did, wow. I think. Yeah, yeah well, something like, like that. What was yeah. it like? It's a... Not being What's there. What's that? So what was it like not being there? Watching oh, what from was the it outside? like? Um, you know, it, it, uh, it, I didn't feel as bad as I thought I would because, because there were no festivities and the, and the usual uh, fun buildup and all of that. It, it looked fairly somber on television. So I didn't have that feeling of uh, missing out on sort of the, the joyful springtime celebration that it normally is. Um, I don't know what it was like there, but, um, so yeah, I, I, I was fine watching it, uh, from afar. Like the rest of us, we're about to find out what it was like there after we introduced from the Southern Hemisphere, making the most of being out of lockdown, free to gallivant around the state playing golf once again. It's the Clayton third of the Clayton DeVries and Pont architecture firm, Mike Clayton. Clayton's no doubt enjoying the freedom to travel, get back to playing at Metro. I think you missed a pretty big chunk of time there in the lockdown, did you not? Yeah, I didn't, wasn't there for months, but... It was, I went up to a place called Cathedral Lodge on the weekend, which is a Greg Norman course in the middle of Victoria. It's a beautiful place, amazing scenery around the golf course. And if you took anyone to – brought any foreigner to Australia and took them to a uniquely Australian golf course, that would be it. Okay. It's, it's, so, it's so typically Australia. It's beautiful Ext- in the country. It's wild. It's beautiful. Extremely private, if I'm not mistaken, Cathedral Lodge? Very, very private. Well, not, well there are 150 members, I think, and – so that's sort of the one course in the country that's based on that model, but it, it does well, I think. It's got some interesting members, and some have been allowed to build houses around it, which okay. is, uh, makes it nice for the people who can stay there. I stayed with a member there in his house above the first tee. It was a pleasant weekend, I have to say. Fantastic. Well, good luck to you. You certainly uh, you certainly paid for it in the run-up with all that time you spent in lockdown. I know you were near St Andrews Beach, but still, a gilded cage is still a cage, Clates, no matter which way. Uh, you cut it. Finally, to our special guest, Lucas Michelli. He's been rightly lapping up the Masters experience in, in the lead-up to the tournament and the week itself. He's back in the land of reality now, though, quarantining in a Sydney hotel, though no doubt still floating on air in some ways. Lucas, welcome. Thanks for taking some time. I know you've got plenty of it, but it's still generous of you to do so to endure our questioning. No, no worries. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I look forward to chatting and, yeah, using up some of the 14 days of time that I've got uh, in this hotel. You so, can, yeah, it's go be fun. From the bed to the chair, from the chair back to the bed, you can map all that out at the start of the day and follow the pattern. Are you over the jet lag? I think you told us you woke up at 2.30 in the morning, so it's all been a yeah, bit crazy. Not quite, yeah. 2.30 this morning, um, was sort of writing some stuff, some stuff about everything I've done in the last four months because it has been a pretty long and eventful trip or I mean, even since back in March, it's been a crazy year for everyone, but 
for me, it's kind of been my plans have been thrown around more than most. Um, so yeah, I was sort of writing a bit of a summary of everything that happened because it's kind of cool to reflect on things sometimes like that. So yeah, you got to put it in perspective too. You're turning into an old man already, Lucas. That's what Clates and I do: get up <laughs> in the middle of the night and write stuff. You find Clates on Twitter at three o'clock in the morning, and I'm often there right along. And for those who are wondering, there was uh, we found out sort of last week or the week before you were staring at a ridiculous amount of money to try to get home. I think you dodged a bit of a bullet. You told us so you managed to get home without spending. Others at eleven thousand dollars at one point it was going to cost you. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking at flights home, obviously, um, before Christmas. But with Australia at the moment, we've we've got um, arrival caps on the number of people that can come into the country. And so when you've got a limited supply of, of arrivals and you've got a lot of demand in the lead up to Christmas, um, anyone that knows basic economics can figure out the prices are going to go through the roof. So, um, yeah, I was looking at maybe 11 grand minimum for a business class ticket, which was really the only way to guarantee yourself on a plane because if you booked economy it happened to me three times where i'd booked an economy ticket and um it just got cancelled because i guess they had someone else willing to pay higher um who they just put into onto the flight instead of me so happened to me three times i was really legitimately looking at booking a business class ticket and then i was sitting in the crow's nest on saturday night it was about 10 30 p.m i was about to go to bed and I just happened to be just looking at some flights because I'd been sort of monitoring them for a while. And this one popped up. It was $2,700 US um, with United from LA to Sydney, um, which was a pretty good price. So I booked it or tried to. Wouldn't book it for some reason. And then I played around on a few things and ended up putting a US mailing address or billing address. And that that was the trigger that got it booked because when I was trying to put in an Aussie uh, billing address into the US website, it wouldn't work. So, anyway, managed to book it and pretty much didn't fall asleep until 1 a.m. that morning because I was so excited <laughs> that I'd actually finally secured a ticket. Yeah, up, well, yes, and w- welcome home, and they can't send you back. So, you've got that going for you. It's uh, good to see you. Uh, let's yeah. get to let's get to the real stuff. You booked a flight from the Crow's Nest, the Masters, the enforced mm-hmm. wait was supposed to be in April, got pushed back to November, all of that sort of stuff. There's expectation and there's reality. How did those two? way up for you when the tournament week finally arrived? Um, it was, I mean, it was obviously the experience that I got wasn't the usual Masters experience, you know, without the crowds, um, patrons, without the a lot of the media and, um, yeah, without a lot of my family and friends there. So it definitely wasn't the experience I was expecting to get prior um, or when I kind of won the mid-am, what I was expecting to have mm-hmm. there. Um, but it was it was cool in its own way. Um, playing there in in the fall um, was interesting. Uh, it was actually really, really warm um, for the first few days particularly. My caddy, Will Davenport, uh, he was wearing that jumpsuit, that white jumpsuit, and he was dying <laughs> under there. So um, we figured out there's actually two different jumpsuits. They give the lighter ones to the more experienced caddies. Um, and they're the only ones that really know about it, apparently. So if you're a newbie, they'll put you in the thick one, but they actually carry two different styles. So <laughs> he figured that out and managed to argue with the, the jumpsuit guy and managed to get himself into a lighter one for the rest of the week, which was good for him. But, um, yeah, overall the experience was – it was really cool. The golf course is obviously an incredible golf course. Um, just playing it with – with my interest in golf course architecture as well and just understand 
painting those green complexes and how cool they are and there's so many ways to play them and so many different interesting pins on them um it would have been nice to, to probably see the greens a little bit quicker um it kind of makes them a, a little bit more creative in how you can play them probably they they weren't that quick at all i didn't think they were probably only about 11 on the stint for the first 10 or 11 on the stint for the first two rounds which you know on those greens is actually pretty tame but um yeah it was it was still really really fun and um yeah i had a had a great time obviously yeah you'd be somewhat in the well very much in the minority i imagine in the field in that very much front of mind would be the golf course design and taking all of that stuff in we've talked about this before with jeff ogilvy and also with clates and various others is that a hindrance or a help that interest in architecture when you're there to compete as well I think I think on a great golf course like Augusta National, probably probably a little bit of a help. Um, I think I'm sort of able to maybe understand the shots a little bit better, how to get at the pins a little bit better. Plus, I'm I'm not only looking at the greens to to try and understand how to play them best, but I'm also looking at them to try and figure out maybe how how Mackenzie was thinking when he built them. So in this in the process, I'm probably allocating more memory to, <laughs> to understanding what they what they look like and and understanding and that that probably helps me understand how they play as well a little bit better so um yeah i think just because i'm interested in golf course architecture probably means that i'm going to come away knowing the greens a little bit better probably going to help me um play the golf course a little bit better um it would have helped if i'd actually hit my irons better though because i could have used that <laughs> effectively i hit them pretty poorly all week um, and wasn't putting myself in good enough positions um, on the fairways either. So, um, but yeah, it certainly helped um, probably around the greens as well and on my putting as well to yeah. to really figure out the breaks and slopes better. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to how the course played and your own game and all those sorts of things in just a moment. But Shaq, I wanted to get an outsider's view. As we said, it's been 10 years since you watched sort of from the outside. What was your overall take on the Masters and what we take away from it? It feels to me like the... I was staggered to see Dustin Johnson in tears. He won the Masters, Rod. What, what? I know, but they <laughs> took away South a PGA Carolina. from him He's, 10 years ago. He never blinked. A, well, and he does it normally, but at some point it kicks in. He's, he is human. We have yeah. that confirmed. He's, of course he's going to cry. Uh, I thought it was a nice moment. Me and, too. and it was a dominating performance. And um, overall, you know, it was – I. I had a very, uh, I had a low bar for this one because I, I had heard uh, in advance of the tournament that, that the ability to get the course in shape was hampered a bit by all the rain they had and delaying the overseed. And even though the club denied that they delayed it, they delayed it uh, until after the uh, remnants of the hurricane went through. And um, so they, they had a lot of things go against them. It, it, I, I also heard they didn't have the greatest summer with the greens and, it just looked to me, and Lucas can speak to this, but it looked to me like there were some some greens that had some stress, not from the tournament conditions, but left over from um, the summertime. So when you add all that up together, to me, the the ability to get the course where they have it in the springtime, which the entire maintenance program is built around peaking then, um, was going to be very tough. And it, it, it looked to me, um, you know, high def is cruel, but it looked to me like they... They did not have it in the the peak condition that we expect, but that overall they did very well given the number of hurdles uh, they had to overcome 
to get it uh, playing in a in a good way. So, in that sense, to me, it was um, it was very success- successful. It, but it, it was clearly not the same in terms of uh, certain elements. In terms of the the, I mean, the ball doesn't roll there anymore. It was seemed to me it was more of the softness of the greens. They just couldn't get them quite to that that firmness level that you would you would hope. Despite all the claims that the sub air would be. I'm sucking the moisture out of the greens, which is total nonsense. It's not. Uh, it's not magic, is it? In some ways, Shaq, I think probably applaud Augusta National. We do enough uh, picking them apart for things to do with the course and whatnot. The easiest thing for them to do, rather than endure this scrutiny, would have been to just cancel the Masters this year. Yeah, good on them for making the effort to go ahead. And of course, the course wasn't in perfect shape. Clates did that detract from the viewing, and well, we will ask Lucas about the playing experience. But did that detract for you from the experience of watching the Masters? The fact that it wasn't its usual pristine, immaculate, perfect self that we see in April. No, not at all. I mean, I don't care about the condition at all. But um, it was it was soft. Yeah. You know, it was, it's always disappointing when you see a course where you know the intent was to have the ball bounce on the greens, just having it not going anywhere at all, seemingly lots of times. So that was that's never as interesting as when it's kicking around a bit. But no, I mean, yeah, you know, I'm the last guy who is going to judge a course by the condition it's in. Yeah, indeed. In, in terms of taking marks away from the golf course because it's not in perfect condition. That, that would actually be a good thing if golf courses were not um, deemed to be somehow some standard if they weren't in perfect condition. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, in fact, I think it might be one of the bigger takeaways in the longer term from this year was that despite the imperfections, Augusta was still amazing. What was it like? What was the condition like on the ground, Lucas? We saw on TV more than one ball hit with fairway woods, hybrids, I think some people still carry a long iron. There might have even been a couple of long irons. Yeah, they just sort of hit the green and stopped. There was a fair bit of splat golf. How wet was it and how differently did it play? I know you've been there at different times of the year in the lead-up to, to to play practice rounds. How different was the course that you found in November? Yeah, so I went in December um, last year and then I went again in – I was there in March and then had to fly home. Um, December was probably the most similar. Uh, it was definitely like damp. The ball wasn't rolling out. Um, greens were probably just as quick in December when I played there. I'm not sure if they dialed them up for, for me or what the deal was. But when I was there in March, it was definitely, you know, the, the ride come in a lot more and there was a lot more coverage on the fairways. Um, and the greens were had a lot of coverage, but they, they weren't very fast. So, yeah, in November it was, I mean, the fairways were almost in a lot of areas just Bermuda grass. So it was like almost 100% Bermuda because the rye hadn't taken. So um, those areas kind of were perfect. But then there was areas in the shade where the Bermuda had started going dormant and then the rye hadn't fully come through. And then you had these like um, really quite bare areas that were not great to play from, like behind the 12th, um, sort of in that fringe there. And um so 13th teeing area, anywhere where it was really shady, um, 8th fairway, it wasn't great. So there was obviously areas where the course wasn't in the best shape. And and like Jeff said, the greens were pretty stressed. I'm not sure exactly what was going on in the lead up, but um, there was definitely, you know, <laughs> they were looking pretty purpley and footprinty in the practice rounds. Um, and then uh, I think the rain kind of, they kind of, they got a little bit better. They did, Well, they looked a little bit better through the week. They probably played firmer and better on 
sort of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, but um, that rain sort of on Wednesday afternoon and Thursday morning didn't help the course, obviously. So, yeah, it was unfortunately pretty soft um, playing conditions. Played really long um, because of that. So, you know, balls, the driver were really just stopping dead. And, um, yeah, and the greens were pretty soft as well. So it was, it was, it was, it was hard in some ways, easy in others. Um, hard because it was playing long, easy because you could just hit and stop it you wherever stop you wanted. It. Yeah, but, that's right. Um, yeah, it was, it was, Different. I would have liked to have seen it obviously firmer and faster, but I'm not sure there was anything that even Augusta National could have done to get it that <laughs> yeah. way for that at some point year with the weather conditions they got. Yeah, at some point God wins, doesn't he? With, with the weather, he can he, he he's got the trump card. <laughs> he can send down the yeah. road, and there's not much you can do about it. I want to come back to some of that playing longer, and we saw some longer clubs into some of the greens, which I thought was a really interesting aspect of the tournament this time. Remember, I did want to ask you about the rough, Lucas. On television, it looked much longer than we've ever seen it at Augusta National. I assume that was the case. What was it like to play out of? And did you get any sense or did anybody, did you talk to anybody about the reason for that? Is that Was there an agronomic reason? Did the rain stop them from getting in there to mow it? Uh, was it deliberate to have the rough at that height or the second cut, as they like to call it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Before yeah. you answer this, Lucas, second cut, <laughs> That's right. Please. That's Go on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, the second cut, um, I mean, I haven't been to the Masters before, so I haven't really seen it, what it normally looks like. There definitely were a few areas in the rough where it was uh, – the word is muddy, but I don't know if I can use that. Um, There's a lot <laughs> of organic material, I think, was, is how was, they put you know, it. Yeah. You could see where mowers had been in there and they were leaving tracks. So I'm not sure whether they just decided to not mow it because of the rain. Maybe they were afraid of putting tracks in it and placing in the rough and being in tracks. I'm not sure, but – um, yeah, it definitely looked longer. It wasn't, I mean, it was honestly like very easy to play from, like compare it to wing foot where I played in September. And <laughs> yeah, good I luck. Mean, you know, it couldn't be any different. So, um, yeah, so it was, it was still fine to play from. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know the exact reason. Did uh, you? Yeah, it just, it, it was a little longer, but it was still fairly easy to get out of. Well, we saw a tournament scoring record, so that tells you that it must have been mm. somewhat playable. Did you get any sense or any info, Jeff, about what, what happened with that? It, it was the the most obvious difference with the course, I thought. If you looked closely, of course, the 13th tee, as as Lucas mentioned there, was by Sunday. I think you posted a picture. The tee marker was halfway across the tee. There was some of it that couldn't be used. So there was some little bits and pieces like that that you would have expected. But the rough was really quite confronting, wasn't it? Did you get any sense or have any info about why it was that way, Jeff? Well, first of all, that the 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 T markers on thirteen is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah, you posted the picture. No, yeah, that was totally engineered to try to uh, prevent the Bryson T shot. Uh, <laughs> those were set there to make you. Uh, I think there's an overhanging limb. I think that they were right. trying to bring into play. And anyway, I was really chintzy, especially as bad as the T looked uh, agronomically. So by the end of the day, you had the two footprints, which that's happened in. In springtime masters recently too, but anyway, um, no, I had also gotten a tip that the rough would be higher. I refuse to believe that they would be that. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Basic, simple. I, I don't lazy. want to describe it. It's best I don't. Uh, so I, I thought it looked awful, and then of course visually, I don't. You know, that's one thing, but I don't understand. After all this time, we've been through this with architecture and rough, and I think. Uh, Clates and Lucas will probably concur, but for most good players, uh, the the threat of a two-inch ryegrass rough lie 
uh, let's say it was two, maybe it was two and a half, uh, is far less problematic than than a flyer lie at let's say an inch and a half or an inch. And I just don't understand why you would want to, because uh, at that height you it looks to me like you eliminate the flyer. But mm-hmm. um, so to me that that makes it easier for most good players because uh, unless it's Bermuda at two two and a half inches, it's just not going to phase good players, and the flyer gets in their heads more. So I didn't think it looked right, and of course it um, I think it almost played easier in a lot of ways for for some players not not fearing the flyer. Hmm. That was just but that's just my perception watching on TV. I didn't I didn't see a lot of situations where players were agonizing over what the ball would do coming out of the second cut. No, I concur. And was Quite, was yes. was there some suggestion that it was actually easier playing from the rough cuz there was no organic matter? Oh, on right, the- that too, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise known as mud. What were yeah, your observations? The balls, the balls landing there weren't picking up the mud, so that's right. they, they were yeah, that was that was uh, several players uh, made that point. And as much as the I want to drop out of a Sandfield divot is completely ridiculous and drives me crazy, I could almost see an argument. I mean, I know it's not going to work, but mud on the ball, left clean and replace it. I mean, you can't play with mud on the ball. You can play out of a Sandfield divot if, you, if you're a good player, but with mud on the ball, you don't have any control over it. It certainly it, it it terrifies good players. I think most of us recreational players sit at home and wonder what they're they're going on about. But clearly, it must have it's a serious fluky, impact. You know, and it ruins a good drive. And, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, all the whining about lift clean in place, or all the pride that we're playing it down. Like, well, really? Yeah. Yeah. Really. But, I mean, I, yeah. yeah, we we never play with mud and the ball in Australia because we're playing on most. Well, well, we well Pretty certainly rare. not in Melbourne because we're always playing on sand. So there's never any. You never see mud and the ball, but. I mean, I've, we used to. There was a course in Melbourne that used to, every time you play, was mud on the ball. And used, the ball just goes all over the place. Yeah, not to control it. What were some of your just observations of the play, Clates, and the way players attacked the course? It was obviously very different. I mean, we saw, uh, was it Saturday, Cameron Smith hit that quite remarkable three or five foot into 15 that sort of stopped dead in its own pitch mark. It's very different for Augusta, isn't it? And that, demand, that requires the players, in a funny way, to think a bit differently about how they're attacking the course if they've been there before, doesn't it? What were your observations about how the players went about their business and answered the questions, the different questions that were asked this time around? No, I thought Johnson's, was Johnson's driving performance the best ever driving performance in golf? Has anyone ever driven the ball that far and that straight and that well ever, really? Um I thought I thought watching him drive the ball was remarkable. Uh-huh. It, well, it always is, isn't it? He's incre- he doesn't get enough probably kudos for he's incredible. I still go back to that drive he hit at Chambers Bay on the seventy second hole uh, at the US Open. We know what happened. Yeah. Green, but that drive he hit down there was just unbelievable. That take it, it takes every ounce of courage and discipline and talent and skill to pull that off in that moment. Um, yeah. did, did it make it? I mean. My- Sorry. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, did no, it make more, it more or less interesting for you to watch the course in those conditions and the way those players were playing it than what we see generally in April when it is a bit firmer? You see balls bouncing over the back of 15 and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's more interesting when the ball bounces. It's always more interesting. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, I, I mean, Lucas can talk to how long the course played, but mm-hmm. um, it seems like it played longer than normal yeah. because the ball wasn't running anywhere and it was cold and, well, co- what well, was November, not April, so I assume the ball doesn't quite go as far as, as the weather gets colder later in the year. But, um, I mean, I mean, I, I mean you hit the ball a long way, Lucas. Did it feel mm. like, I mean, how much longer, for example, did it play than when we play at Metro? Was it like 500 yards longer or the equivalent of, or like way longer? Or 
Yeah, it it's a pretty long golf course. I'd say it's probably what is it off the backs. It's I mean, you guys might know better. Maybe like seventy four hundred yards, something like that. Seventy five hundred yards is it that yeah. long. I, I don't know. know. I'm going to Google it because yeah. I yeah, yeah. Metro's what seventy three, seventy four. Yeah. So yeah, but, but with it, eight, with, you know, fifty yeah, yards run. Yeah, exactly. So it played. It did play pretty long. Um, definitely like the clubs I was hitting into greens. I'd say I'm, I'd probably average two to three more clubs than I would at Metro. Um, so definitely, definitely a long, long sort of golf course. Um, and yeah, it, you know, occasionally you, if you're in the rough, you'd, you'd actually go further because you'd be catching pine straw and rough that would actually even have the ball rolling out. The straighter you hit it, it was almost, it played even longer. Um, yeah. so it was, it was definitely, definitely an interesting sort of setup. Um, but yeah, it, you know, very Difficult golf course, but probably in a way playing a fair bit easier just because of the, the the softness of it. I mean, when you've got greens as soft as they were, you can you're not really calculating rollouts or anything like that. It's so much easier to just hit it close to the hole. There's, there was probably only a couple shots around the golf course that probably played a little bit harder because of the softness. Um, wedge shot into 15 was really tricky to the right pin um, because it was so easy to spin it back into the water. Um, like I, I think I pitched it like ten yards behind. I went down a club, pitched it ten yards behind, and still almost sucked back into the water. Um, so that was probably one of the shots that actually played harder. But for the most part, it it did play easier into the greens. Is there um, anything? Just, is there anything more ridiculous than sucking a ball back off a green into water? It just seems like <laughs> such a silly penalty. It just seems what's the, you know just makes no sense to me how, how that can happen. Yeah, I mean, it takes kind of takes some control and thought to stop it happening, though. If you know the greens well, it kind of. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind maybe sucking it back off the green, but sucking it back into the water. Yeah, kind of seems. Yeah. kind of an odd, mm. severely Sorry. odd penalty for, by definition, a shot that's not that bad. Now wait a second, Clay. So the players can ad- <laughs> adapt with their equipment. They don't have to put that much spin on the ball and use all this. Uh, technology to do that there that's that's their choice is it not well i guess well i, I could, mean tiger hit two two good shots that both spun back into race creek so he was going to agree with you in this conversation yeah i mean i mean here, but t- tiger made the the best 10 ever didn't he oh, uh, yeah yes. I mean, he really didn't hit that many and then by the way the bunker shot it looked like he had no sand underneath and i've heard that bunker they always have trouble having enough sand in there because they do all the the leaf blowing with it uh, blowing the needles out of the bunker, so it, it's uh, why you don't want to be in that bunker. Hmm. Um, but yeah, anyway. But I, can, can I ask uh, Lucas? What? Of course you can. What, what were your? Uh, what was your your your? What was the hole that was most fun to play, and the hole that was the least fun to play? Mm. Um, I think I think thirteen is still really good. That that tee shot for me is kind of perfect like it it works really well for me because if i really want to rope one around and get it close to the green i can take the risk but then if i want to bail out with a three wood it's a really easy shot and i can play it as a three shotter so i think 13 still works well for a guy like me um trying to think what might be the weaker one of the weaker holes well, I, you um, know I, I don't it doesn't even have to be a critique just the one that you yeah. just kind of like i don't really mm. i don't feel comfortable on this hole it, it's just tough it's, yeah it's intimidating, probably 17 17 yeah. i don't know i blew yeah. it i blew it onto the 15th fairway in the yeah, first it's not round. a bad way to play it yeah and <laughs> i mean i i had a shot at 
I was out there and I, I saw Stan Stinson was like looking at me like, what the hell is this guy doing out here? But um, he was coming down 15 at the same time. Uh, and then I, I hit it way right of the green. And I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the worst place to be, but it was a shocking tee shot. But yeah. I just, I didn't really feel that comfortable on that tee, I suppose. And I mean, it's a good hole, but I don't know if it's the best in the top no, sort of nine or what they've done to 15 that hole holes on the golf course. Yeah. yeah. So um, that was probably the one hole that kind of, yeah, didn't really stand out to me, but I mean, still a, a very good golf course. I mean, the third hole, I think is really, really fun, really awesome. Um, sort of, Short, not really drivable, unless you're Bryson. Um, but you know, you can. The guy that I played with laid back to the to the shelf there and thought that was the best way to play it. But I just hit driver down there because with the softness of the greens and they weren't that quick, you could still kind of wedge it pretty close from down the bottom of the gully this year. So um, yeah, I thought that was a really cool golf hole that doesn't get a lot of talk. Just for some context, 7,768 yards, Augusta National, 7,103 metres, which is longer than your uh, guess was. I, I don't know what mm. it plays to that full yardage, but that's what it's listed as on Wikipedia, and we can all trust Wikipedia. Probably the back, back. I yeah, yeah, I, I would yeah, think that's... so. But but what I wanted to ask you for, for context, as I said, Lucas, um, where would you have stood in that field in terms of driving distance? How far do you kind of average with the driver off the tee in terms of flight? And what sorts of clubs were you hitting into the greens for contest? We saw particularly the 11th hole, it seemed to me, an awful lot of fairway woods, hybrids going into that green, which we don't normally see. It seems that normally the players carry it up over the top of the hill, get some run down, and they hit short to middle irons in there. That wasn't wasn't the case for much of this week, it looked like. No. So, I mean, I'm sort of probably, I'd say I'm in like the, top 30 to 40 percent of like tour players lengthwise like i'm a little above average mm-hmm. um compared to most of the guys out there so like for instance down one i've sort of if i hit a good one i think i had nine nine in um two it would be a three wood in this week just because it wasn't running much down that hill um whole like five was like a full six iron um Seven, I didn't hit the fairway, so I can't can't speak to that. Nine, I hit two really good drives and had nine irons into the green there. Um, ten was a pretty long club because I'd take three wood. I didn't try and rope driver around there. So ten, I think I hit seven and six iron. Um, Eleven, yeah, I hit a four. Uh, I got a three iron that's got a four iron stamped on it, but it's really a three iron. Um, so I used that into 11 on the second round and actually hit a really good shot and made birdie, which was nice. But yeah, that was, that was playing really long. I'm not sure exactly why I missed it in the left rough. So I did have a longer shot in, but I'd say if I'd hit a really good one, I might've had a five iron in probably. So that played fairly long, but um, yeah, like 14 was really only like a wedge or nine iron. 15 was a four or five iron in from the top of the hill. And yeah, 17, was yeah like a wedge or nine nine eighteen was a I didn't play pretty long actually so it was probably like a six iron um, but yeah it you know even still even with the self conditions I'm not having a heap of club into most of the greens it's it's still you know you can't really do anything to prevent me from having mid irons into any long par four and you're in that sort of t- who did you play with. And how did they mm-hmm. sort of stack up against the way you were sort of playing? Were you longer than and shorter than them? I mean, for the bulk of the field, would that be yeah. about the the yardages we're talking, or how much? Yeah, would I play? played with practice rounds with uh, Xander Shoffley, Max Homer, 
uh, Patrick Cantlay. All the uh, cool kids, Lucas. Colin Mark. Yeah, all the Californians, actually. Colin Markara as well. Um, so I played practice rounds with those guys, and I was like pretty similar to – I'd say Shoffley was pretty similar to me, maybe mm-hmm. five yards longer. And then I was longer than Cantlay and the others, probably, by 10, 10 yards or so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I, I was – I was like in the yeah, I'd say the seventieth percentile of driving distance, probably. Okay. Um, and you know, I played in the tournament rounds. I played with Larry Mize and um, Andrew Landry, and so Larry, I think, averaged two hundred and forty-seven yards in the first mm-hmm. round. Shot so um, had the same score as Bryson. So I saw Scott Forster taking bets on Twitter <laughs> who was going to yeah. um, lead or beat beat each other in the second round, but. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, that was actually really cool to watch. The guy didn't miss it fairway. It reminded me a lot of how Clates plays, actually. Just I was gonna say, yeah, I was going to say, it must be like playing you know, with like Larry Mullins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was honestly almost identical to playing with Clates. Um, but yeah, he just got it around so well. So that was cool to watch as well. Um, and I think probably the soft greens helped guys like that yeah. who are coming in with woods into almost all the long, longer fours. Yeah, which brings uh, but. Yeah, I mean Andrew Landry was a little longer then, so. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I was sort of one one of the longer players in the field, but not the longest, obviously. Which brings us neatly, Clates, to the whole architectural question. And I know that you have frank and open discussions constantly on Twitter with people who think there's no issues with the ball and uh, are not on our side of that discussion. Listening to Lucas go through his clubs, there, I guess I'm struck by two things in particular: the fifth hole, which they spent an absolute bucket load of money on moving the tee, what, 40 yards back, I think, Shaq, two years ago uh, to turn it into a drive and a six iron, uh, which is a long hole in the modern game. And the 14th hole, Clates, which I've heard Byron Nelson say in an interview, was a forward shot for those guys back in the day. The intent of the golf course, whilst there's enough of it left to continue to make it one of the most interesting tournaments every year, it's clear from what Lucas is saying there, isn't it, that the intent of a lot of the shots at the golf course has changed or is not being sort of fulfilled. Yeah, and Augusta's got the ability to lengthen itself more than any other course in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know it's what, what, Royal Melbourne can't do what Augusta does. Or I mean, how many no courses can do what Augusta does and buy up surrounding roads and, and holes from surrounding golf courses to extend out. So, yeah, yeah, you, you assume that Mackenzie and Jones wanted to examine long line play, which you could argue they do. I mean, there, there are long lines at two and four, I suppose. I mean, the fourth hole, Lucas, what were hitting in there? Four iron or something? Yeah, I hit a, had a three iron in the second round, so yeah. Yes, and you know, 13's a long line often and 15 still. So there's still a decent examination of long line play, but not on par fours anymore. I mean, my fundamental argument is that what happened to the driver long iron par four? It's just completely disappeared from golf. Mm. So some people think that's okay. Some people, like I assume us, don't think that's okay because that was a it was always a fundamental examination of one part of the game was, you know, tilling hast at wing foot. You know, make it a man sized course. Can, can you hit a great drive and a great three on onto a difficult green? That was the, you know, it was certainly an important part of the game that's completely gone as far as I can see. As a player, Lucas, would you have enjoyed mm-hmm. the prospect of standing in the 15th fairway or on the 13th fairway as we watched Faldo do in 96, the hand going from the five wood to the two iron, 
Uh, you know, Nicholas hitting the one-iron across the water there at 15 on a couple of, couple of different occasions. Is that more enjoyable as a player? I mean, it's, a, it's an awkward question because I suppose you can't know, but what's your sense? Yeah. I mean, there is still those decisions. They're obviously – the shots are easier to hit these days, but, I mean, on 13, I hit it, I hit it into the right – rough there and the first round I was actually in the trees a little bit and I had a I had a, I had that decision it was you know do I go for it or do I hit it out to the right and I mean they're still there it's just you know it's it's not the same obviously as it, as it was once um, but I think I think the course still has a lot of those types of decisions that are fraught with so much danger you know going for it in two on 15 if you're not a long way down there and you know, it's a tough shot, particularly when the pin's on the left. And, you know, if you pull it a bit, it's gone into that backwater as well. So, yeah, I mean, the shots are still there. They're probably just maybe not quite as good as they were. Plus, you know, clubs are easy to hit these days. So it's not as the risk-reward balance isn't quite the same. Augusta National aside, not specifically talking about that course, but more generally speaking, mm. would the game being mm. more difficult to play be more satisfying for better players? I, I feel mm. like we as fans miss out on something. And to go back to Augusta, because we don't get to see Rory and Dustin make those decisions on 15, 13 in particular. They're the obvious ones that stand out where, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've got to make those decisions. But I, I feel like the players miss out in some ways too. They don't get to show off the extraordinary skills they've got. A lot of people who think of those of us who favour a rollback are taking some sort of shot at the players that they're not as skilled as they once were. I think they are. We just don't get to see it, do we? Where, where mm. can we test Rory's ability to hit a forward or a one-iron, uh, you know, with a, yeah. with a severe penalty for not doing it properly. I would relish the opportunity to watch it, and I imagine he yeah. would relish the opportunity to do it. Yeah, I'm not sure you can anymore. I, I, I don't know if it's possible. I mean, um, yeah, it's it's just a different – the equipment's completely different, and, you know, golf courses and the scale of everything is just different. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's – I mean, I don't know if it's possible to get what you're asking for there. Yeah. Sort of. Fixing the ball up. I mean, it, was, it was interesting, Steve Elkin, because I've been playing with some old Spalding top flight irons from 1972 or three. Elkin put a tweet up today about his 1980 model, I think, 85 model tightless irons. He said the six iron goes 170 yards. Today, is, with the modern so, so, so irons, that, I mean, I don't know how far Lucas hits his irons. I mean, they go so much further than they use. I mean, what's your six iron? Almost 200 yards? 190, probably? Uh, yeah, like 190, 195. I mean the lofts. I mean you got to look at the lofts, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, yeah, yeah, but, I, but but your but your six. I've looked. I know what your six iron looks like. Yeah. It doesn't look a whole lot different to my sporting yeah. top flight nineteen seventy six iron. Looks pretty much the same probably, club to me. Yeah, might be, might be yeah, two, I think it's two, I think two most, degrees. I mean, yeah, Mizuno's are probably two degrees stronger than like an old traditional um, blade. And I play a blade as well, so I'm not using all the technology. But if you go out there and some of those Callaway irons, I mean, they're ridiculous. I play with guys that use them, and they're a full club longer than me. And I mean, I'm longer with longer than them with the driver. So I mean, some of the companies just do ridiculous things with the irons. But I'm using Mizuno's, and they're pretty true, like you say. I mean, I suppose, Clates, on the flip side, 190 yards is still 190 yards. It doesn't matter what club you use to hit that distance, does it? And it still takes a lot of skill to take a tiny little Mm -hmm. ball over that distance and put it, you know, 15 or 20 feet from what it is that you're aiming at. But it does feel like there's been something lost from the game at the top level. And it's probably the part of the game people often talk about, you know, why would you want professional golf to be closer to 
more recognisable to us amateurs. I think that separation that you used to have, everybody who watched Jack Nicholas and who played off a handicap of 10 or more knew that they could not do what he did with a one. Half the pros that he played with knew they couldn't do what he did with a one iron, and that separation was sort of more interesting. So I just wonder what uh, mm-hmm. what the game overall sort of might... You know, there's certainly been gains in performance in some ways, but in sort of romance and those connections to the game, which I think are unique in golf, there's certainly been something um, maybe sort of lost. We didn't really chat well, much. But, Sorry, Jeff. But Rod, the, the irony of that is that the people who oppose bifurcation uh, say that, that the reason you can't do that uh, is is because due the- to the <laughs> connection that we want to have yeah. play the same game. Even though we all know they're now very different games, and the elite players get uh, disproportionate benefits mm-hmm. from the modern equipment, so it, it you know the messaging's all over the place on that, yeah. um, and I, and it, and it gets exhausting trying to yeah. because I do love that connection, and and I think you could if it's done right, you could restore some of that mm-hmm. where you force the good player to maybe throttle back a little bit. And that doesn't impact uh, the average golfer at all playing the same equipment. Yeah. The, the only similarity between what Lucas does with a set of golf clubs and what I do with a set of golf clubs, Jeff, is the name. It ends <laughs> there. They're both called yeah. golf, but there is no similarity beyond that, and that, which is the truth of it. And, any, and it probably doesn't happen that often. And you would probably come across this from time to time too, Clades. People who've never played or seen up close really good players are mm. quite often taken aback. At just how good, not only how good they are, but how far they hit it, how different the game looks at that. I know I am every year when I go to a tournament. It's like, wow, you forget. These guys are kind of, that's kind of my problem. I play with, you know, the hackers that I play with at home. And I, I went and played last night and I thought, I thought I hit a few pretty good drives, but I just need to be woken up every, not, well, I do because I play with Lucas a lot. But when I had a good drive and hits a good drive and it goes 80 yards past me, it's got, you know, it's just, I mean, 40 yards. I mean, Nicholas always said he was 40 yards past the club champion. Now that's 80 yards. Yeah. That's right. So, but so, so for my first point would be the game's never been more bifurcated than it is now mm-hmm. in terms of how the normal player plays. And I'm a normal player. I'm a, I'm a, I score better than most people, but I'm a normal di- distance player. Lots of people with the ball as far as I do. And it's just, you know, I'm, there's never been a bigger gap between me and, go like Lucas mm. and uh, I forgot my other point anyway that doesn't matter but um <laughs> yeah you know it's just completely bifurcated the way it is now and, and and the only way to get it back to somewhat close to the one game that Nicholas was talking about is to bifurcate the is to change the ball uh, otherwise it's just going to get increased the gaps are only going to increase because Bryson will be the norm in that's right nothing there's nothing more certain than Bryson DeChambeau will be the norm in 20 years is there because any- that's always been the way it's happened. That's right. Always. Is, is there anything in the argument, though, Clates, that that is a wonderful example example of human triumph over, you know, limitation? Can you see that no, argument? No, no, no. No, well, no. no I mean, well the, the human, the greatest human triumph ever was putting a man on the moon. So, it's, it's, which is just technology and innovation and science. Yeah. That was a great thing. But is it a great thing that you know? Golf pros stopped making clubs and rocket scientists started making them, and they figured out how to make the ball go further. I don't think that's you know, there's really almost nothing that the players have done to add that distance. I mean, Bryson traps aside, he's, you know, he's got a maniacal diet and unbelievably strong and fit, but you know, the players have done far less than than the scientists have done in terms yeah. of the 
laying the ball to go further. In, in that great TED talk, which I, I, I'm not sure if you guys have watched or not, the first time I watched it, the big takeout was what, what if, if you took away the technology, what a tiny gap there was between Jesse Owens and Usain Bolt. But the second time I watched it, the, the thing I took out, out of it most was Eddie Merckx, the Belgian cyclist, who rode for, I think, it was a two-hour ride, I think, and he went 35 miles and whatever it was. And that record got completely smashed in, in the intervening, you know, 20 years, 30 years later. It was, it was a wild difference between how far a cyclist could ride in two hours. Then they went back and put someone on, on the same equipment he was using. And over 40 years, there was an 880 feet increase over two hours. So, so you know, so, so the guy who made this TED Talk was, was making the, the point that this is not about superior athleticism this is about improved equipment mm. although the, the the biggest takeout at the end was that what sports have done is adapt bodies better to the sports they're playing so gymnasts are smaller michael phelps has got the same length legs legs as hitchin belgarouge who i think was the world mole champion but he's a foot taller so swimming times have gotten better because bodies are adapted better to that sport but and in golf, I guess that's that's true too, because we, we really did we see great tall players, you know, Weisskopf, the best of them probably, George Archer won the Masters six foot. But now with longer, lighter shafts, you, you, you're seeing guys, lots of guys who are Dustin Johnson's built, who would have found it probably more difficult to play with a 43-inch driver. Now that it's 45, it makes it easier, I assume. What do you reckon about all that, Lucas? Because you're a, you've grown up in the world we have now. Mm. You know, you haven't crossed over this generation the way Clates has and you know, the way I have and and Shaq has. Is he dissing you and your generation and your abilities and your commitment? Oh, no, 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 to the game? no, no. I mean, I mean, people misunderstand what I think. I'm amazed. I'm like Kelly Verelva, smiley in this round, seven year old kid, really great, fantastic player. I'm amazed at how much better they are than we were, how skilled they are, and. I've played with Lucas. I mean, this, the modern generation players are incredibly good, amazingly good. So, you know, I'm not dissing on their skills at all. There's no doubt they're incredible players. Yeah. I grew up, you know, I, I grew up, I, I'd, I'd never hit a persimmon club until Clates handed me one. So, <laughs> the infection. I've grown up. <laughs> That's cool. Getting used to um, playing with lightweight clubs, lightweight equipment. I think it's definitely. The golf swing is different, what it requires, just because of the it, the equipment is so different. Um, and so, what you're seeing, I think, now is you got these young guys coming out. They they haven't used anything other than what they're using, and they're really good at using them. Um, so, like your Hovlands and your Morikawas and um, those sort of guys, Matt Wolf. You know, they're having a lot of success early in their careers, just because I think they're probably more adapted to the equipment they're using than guys like Tiger and, and, you know, Phil who grew up playing with persimmon and, and heavier equipment and different balls. And, and, you know, Tiger probably had the toughest run out of anyone. I mean, he had to play through an era where, you know, he grew up playing with completely different equipment to what he had the most success with, which is, you know, obviously even more impressive with what he did, but, um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, it'd be interesting whether we keep seeing young kids having a lot of success, um, on the tour or whether over time, um, you know, as the generation rolls through that these younger kids either, you know, burn their bodies out with, 
you know, injuries in, in that or whether they're sustainable and ha- can have long careers like the guys used to have back in the day. That'll, that'll be interesting because the game is, I mean, it's completely different. And it is the equipment that's, that's caused it to be different. I mean, when you put a big-headed drive ahead and allow the shafts to be really light, it makes sense that you just go at it with, you know, 100% violence yeah. at the ball. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting whether the bodies and the, and the careers are as, as long and sustainable. What's your instinct but, about that, Lucas? You play with a lot of these guys. Um, Some of the moves are really violent, aren't they? Really violent. You know, yeah, like- I mean, I've never really had any issues myself, injuries-wise. Like, I, I hit it pretty hard and pretty violently, and I've, I've been lucky. But, um, you know, a good friend of mine, Todd Sinnott, who hits it probably further than Bryson even, um, he's been playing in Japan and Asia and, and last two years he's been really struggling with a back injury. So, um, you know, I'm sure that that sort of stuff was happening back then, uh, back, you know, in the you know, 40 years ago as well. But I'm not sure if it's more common these days or not. It'll be, it'll be interesting. I, I, I don't know where – I, I assume that, you know, the harder you hit it, you're putting more forces and more strain on different, you know, bones and, and tendons and muscles. I assume there's going to be more injuries. That would make sense. But mm. – I guess we've just got to wait it out and see. It, it, the training, though, is specifically designed for a lot of that, isn't it, though, mm. at that elite level? The workouts is, that the players yeah. do are very targeted. I had, and- I had a conversation with Luke Mackey, who's Golf Australia's, like, uh, I mean, he was, I've worked with him for ages. He's a, um, like, a physical trainer. Um, I've gotten programs for him to get stronger and, and that sort of stuff, um, some gym stuff. And he was saying, basically, every sport where someone's done something like Bryson's doing where they, you know, bulk up, get heavier, get stronger. Uh, I think he, he talked about basketball as well. Basketball was doing the same, you know, sort of 20, 30 years ago. So every sport that someone does that, the careers just get shorter, but they have more success in, in the short term. Short so term. he sort of saw it as if that's the way things go with golf then the careers are going to be shorter and, and, but you know they might be more successful in that shorter time. It's just a different what. It's just a different kind of career. Don't invest in the Champions Tour, Shaq. It's like, <laughs> it's not got a long term future, perhaps. Um, we haven't. No, seen- and I, you know I've had people. Of course, we in the United States, everybody always wants to ask about Jordan Spieth or now Ricky Fowler. What's happened? And uh, not and obviously a different discussion than the injury one, but. I remind them how much money they've made, and you know, there's that as well. That that certain stars are just not going to, and that I'm not saying that they're not motivated, but there has to be something that erodes your your drive uh, at a certain point when you can look in your your bank account and see just just lots and lots of zeros that that are fronted by a, a, a not not a zero. Uh, it has to chip away somehow at your. Uh, at your drive and the window of greatness. And we've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast is, is, is shrinking for all of those reasons, money, this, this move to speed, the, the game being less interesting to play. Uh, you know, it, it just has to erode, which is what makes the PGA tours position so mysterious. Their, their product depends on you, enjoying but i mean and, and they're not alone in this by the way in the you know the united states college basketball has been ruined by the lack of longevity of players staying and the nba hasn't been improved by by the 
the the quality of the player that's jumping up to their level. Um, people acknowledge this, but we're just in a world where they 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 don't care. We want to we want to make young people succeed sooner and cash in on them, and the people around them cash in, and uh, it's a strange cycle that that will will hopefully change. But the one thing you guys left out, and you know, if you took away um, Bryson's launch monitors and uh, and his four inch tee. Uh, it would really change. Those two things would very quickly change uh, his ability to do a lot of what he's doing. But um, I don't, I don't, you know, that's we don't an need interesting to go down position. That, that rat hole. Well, but that's, what? Well, I don't know. That's an interesting position, Joe. I hadn't actually thought of it that way, but you're right. Uh, probably particularly the launch monitor. How much does the launch monitor inform? Oh, it's just huge. I mean, what it does golf. for instruction, and, we're, and, and, and this is a tribute to the people around the players, too who are using these tools very well, and that's another part of the equation. And again, when we started this with Clates apologizing, you know, because you don't want to sound like you're, you're dissing these people, and mm. we, we, we admire what people are doing with these tools. There's no question the instructors, and, and really until Bryson, the last two, three years, what the, 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 the people helping players get stronger and and better uh what they were doing was was going in a good direction tiger kind of got people in a bad direction bulk up and then and then he and rory and a few guys started kind of you know toning that down a little although rory showed up at augusta looking mm, um not tough. sinewy let's mm. put it that way yeah. somebody's mm. been lifting but the 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 wisdom in that Area, I don't want. I don't know what you want to call it. The the, the um, biomechanics trainers. And all that we'll just stuff. call them trainers. Yeah. Um, Sports had, had really, yeah, it had really uh, had learned from some mistakes, and and we and then Bryson's now come along, and this bulk up thing's gonna kind of throw a wrench in all that. So I, 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 it's the same thing. We 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 get accused of of uh, being Debbie Downers about this. And, and a lot of the people around the players get very defensive. But the fact is they're better than ever at using these tools to make the players better. So um, Better information really, isn't it? Is the, the, that's really ultimately at the end of all is it's better information. That's what science is. It's, it's better yeah, information than yeah. the previous generation. And, and young people are growing up faster. Yeah. The downside of that is that uh, they probably will burn out faster. Uh, at the if they don't get hurt or they just don't lose interest. So, but can I? Can uh, I, I just gotta. While we have Lucas, uh, so you, I have to ask a question. Mm-hmm. Knowing your interest in architecture and 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 all of our state of the game listeners are already completely drunk with all the the rollback <laughs> talk. Um, so you got to stay in the crow's nest. Now, one of the traditions of that is that you you kind of have the right to wander around the clubhouse. At night, and uh, they yeah. have some amazing things on the wall. Did you did you get to do that and look at some of the old photos and old McKenzie plans and old clubs and and memorabilia yeah. newspaper articles? I'd done it before, actually. So I didn't do it so much this this time in the crow's nest, but um, I did do it like or I have done it in the past. So I have seen obviously the McKenzie plan. Uh, I think it's in the men's grill actually downstairs. Um, and then obviously there's a bunch of photos. There was, I think that the locker room they used us or that they, they had us using was like separate to where we normally use. So I don't know, Mm. you probably know different to me where everything is, but they, they had this separate locker room, which I don't know what normally is, but they had a bunch of old photos from like the, maybe the fifties, forties and fifties. So a little, little after like McKenzie was there, but I mean, looking at some of those, it's really cool to see what the architecture looked like back then versus now i certainly think i wish they would 
turn back the clock on the aesthetic at least, even if they don't want to change the, you know, the golf course too much and Mm. have it played too differently. If they just turn back the aesthetic, I think that would be a good look for golf. Yeah. They're not, I don't think they're into those, those bunkers. Uh, I would love to see some of the, Mm. at least the green shapes come back yeah. those, those bizarre shapes like number nine and number four mm-hmm. although there was a yeah. cool camera shot this year i don't know if you guys saw it uh but they had a side view of number four that was that, that it kind of showed quite a bit of the the tongue down the front it looked pretty great um but i don't yeah. i don't eh, it's the old was one was crazy to, i was chatting to i think it was um who was it uh, i'm trying to think now i think it was maybe canlay it was one of the guys that played the it was a college event out at Pass Tiempo, I think. And yeah. he was saying, I think it was on the fourth green, how much it looked like. Is it 16 or 17, maybe 17? Yeah, 16. Yeah. yeah, 16 at Pass Tiempo. If you look at it from the right angle, it mm. looks almost identical. Mm. Quite cool. Yeah, yeah. the old horseshoe green at the ninth hole would make that a more interesting shot, wouldn't it, than it is now? Yeah, I think so. It depends, though, because, like, obviously you put the left horseshoe in and everyone wants to hit it on the first fairway. So, um, yeah, it, oh, it's just, true. It's yeah. different. That was the most shocking thing that I saw this year. And Faldo went off on two rambling, incoherent um, thing diatribes about technology. And even Nance had to Jim Nance, who tries to stay out of the technology discussion, could not uh, hide his shock. It. Uh, this was the first time you saw players hitting a tee shot off nine. And the tracer behind the T telling that you as a longtime observer, master's observer, oh, that's too far left. And multiple times it happened and the guys just, just airmailed the trees. Oh, yeah. And even the player, one, one or two of the players didn't look happy with the line. And it, and it, oh, it was Dylan Fratelli. And, uh, and it, and it sailed easily over the trees. <laughs> and that was when that, that mm. opened the door for Faldo to go on. A, I mean, he made no sense at all. Um, <laughs> but I was pleased that he was trying to bring up the topic. And, and, uh, but that was shocking to see guys do that. I mean, that's a long carry. The, to- <laughs> the a- topic actually came up at, um, at the amateur dinner. I was sitting a couple, couple spots across from Mike Dave. And so we were talking about, you know, rolling it back and that sort of stuff and courses. And he's obviously, that's something he's actually pretty passionate about. So, yeah, um, unfortunately, he's yeah, leaving. We, we had a little, yeah. yeah, we had a little chat about it And he seemed, I don't know, he seemed, seemed confident that something will happen. But yeah, yeah. we'll see. Well, you're fellow architects now, aren't you? So you've had plenty to talk about. And that's what Mike's. <laughs> yeah. That's what Mike's yeah. Exactly. Uh, How was the amateur dinner? Yeah. Oh, that was great. I mean, it, it was literally, literally like the fastest sit down talk sort of dinner i've ever been to i think it started at seven and we we're out of there by 8 30 um but it was like the like one of the most action-packed like dinners ever like mm. so there was so uh trevor immelman was there he was the sort of guest speaker um john carr i think was the member that hosted it um and yeah i mean Trevor had some great stories of him, you know, his first first time playing the event where he's paired up with Gary Player and um, the advice he got on the first tee because he couldn't put the pe- peg in the ground on the first tee, couldn't tee it up, and Gary kind of came over him and wrapped his arm around him. and So it was it was really cool, um, you know, knowing that I think that the stat that uh, John Carr 
put out the of the all the masters winners a third of them have competed in the tournament as an amateur so i mean that's wow. obviously helped by the fact that tigers won six and you know, <laughs> or five and and nicholas won six you know and, and yeah, Nicholson sure. won, yeah. you know yeah like so it makes sense when you think about it but also at the same time it's pretty impressive that a third of them played as an amateur that was sort of like a bit of a pinch me moment when i was like geez this is pretty <laughs> this is pretty cool wow there's a lot of sap around the Masters, uh, Lucas. It seems to get worse every year. This year mm. we saw footage on Twitter of them painting the gutters on the road leading down Magnolia Lane, which was a whole new level, I thought. It's easy the older you get to get cynical about that sort of stuff. Did you plug into that? Did you feel mm. it? Does it make the hairs on the back of the neck stand up? Uh, yeah, I mean, at the amateur dinner, definitely. In the crow's nest, there was. I mean, I slept under a picture of Ben Crenshaw, which was really cool. Um and I actually didn't get to meet Mr. Crenshaw, which is disappointing. I wanted to. I, I passed him driving past Magnolia Lane. I was like, oh, my God, there he is. But I didn't get to meet him because he would have been someone I wanted to chat to. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's a really cool place. Um, Magnolia Lane never really kind of – never really kind of sort of turned me on that much. <laughs> but um, – when you do get to the end of the driveway there and it opens up, it, it's a nice, it's a cool, nice view when you yeah. get there and you see the flowers in the clubhouse. And, Indeed. Um, and yeah, there's definitely, it is Disneyland in parts yeah, for, for, you know, pro golf and yes. golfers in general. I mean, the range is like the best driving range you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, I don't know what they prefer it called. Was it a practice facility or something like that? But um, yeah, it's, the range is really cool, and I mean, you got tunnels under the under the. <laughs> I don't know where it actually goes under, but it goes under somewhere, and you end up popping out somewhere else. It's like you've got all these like crazy infrastructure around the place, but um, yeah, it's it's it is a cool place. Yeah, indeed. Last one for me before we let you go, Lucas. Uh, one of the things, obviously, one of the opportunities you have when you get to play the Masters as an amateur is to measure yourself against the very best in the world. Mm. Did you learn about your own game and where you sort of fit? into that world of golf as a player? Yeah. I think, I mean, I definitely wasn't too disheartened. I know if you look at my scores at the US Open and the Masters, you'd probably think I'd come away thinking I'll never, I'd, I, you know, I'd come away thinking I'd never get there. But given how poorly I felt like I played and hit the ball, I could see that the guys I was playing with, they were still human. Like they weren't probably as good as I'd made them up to be in my mind. Um, so that was kind of, that was like the carrot dangling at the end, <laughs> end of my nose, like to see that, you know, maybe I actually do have what it takes. I've just got to get a little bit sharper. And it was mainly with my ball striking, my short game putting definitely felt like it was up to scratch. It was just that I hit a lot more bad shots than those guys do. Yeah. They're just, they're just really tight with their dispersions and don't really have the big misses that I have. And after two days in the field, did 20 under look like a possibility to you, which is where Dustin Johnson ended uh, up? Put that in perspective. I mean, it didn't It didn't look crazy to me, 20 mm. under. I mean, it was playing soft. Like, I could see myself, if I played well, like getting around a couple under each day and shooting eight under. Like, that, that, was, that didn't seem far-fetched to me. Um, and knowing that Dustin Johnson's the golfer that he is, like 20 under – also didn't seem that far-fetched for someone like him. So, yeah, I'd say, you know, 20 looked, you know, reasonable. Maybe, you know, you'd have to play really, really well, but it did look reasonable. I didn't play 
Saturday or Sunday. I went and walked on Saturday, which was a cool experience in its own right, having no really other spectators out there. But, um, yeah, it definitely played a little harder on the weekend. But, um, yeah, it's still 20 looked, you know, knowing how good those guys are, yeah, achievable. Not unfeasible for the best player in the world. Clates, as a seasoned mm. pro, what do you say to a young man in Lucas's position with his golf game and all of that before him? What advice would you give him? How much of it's physical? How much of it's attitude? I like Lucas's attitude there in particular. Easy to get caught up in the physical, particularly with all the stuff we've just been talking about, hasn't it? Less of that when you played the tour, I suspect. Yeah, well, Lucas, we were talking about it yesterday, and I think you said that I need to learn to hit the ball better under pressure, which is true. It's fine to play well in when you're fooling around a practice round, but you've got to, you know, I mean, I watched your Lucas's first round on the, you know, where you can watch every shot and it, you've got to hit more than two fairways around to compete with those guys. So <laughs> that would be, you know, you would need to tighten that up. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, Lucas hits the ball fantastically well. So uh, you know, I'd be the last guy to dissuade someone from wanting to play pro golf and giving it a go. But Lucas is in the fortunate position of having other options, which yeah. is always a very nice place to mm. be. So you can try both. Yeah. It, 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 the mm. world would probably be a better place if more people had those options, wouldn't it, Shaq, in many ways? I do another podcast called The Thing About Golf, and in the last couple of months I've spoken about Scott Hend and Wade Ormsby, and both sort of agreed that this 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 new generation of golfers who – for whom that's all there is, and they don't really understand what goes on behind the scenes. I'll give you an example. So Scott Hen said, you know, obviously with his career, he's into his sort of late 40s now, Scott. He knows where he's staying, what it's costing, how much everything in the bar fridge costs, and he talks to these kids in the practice, and says, where are you staying? And they'll tell him, say, how much is that? And they go, I don't know. <laughs> how much is the hire car cost? I don't know. Where'd you get the track, man? I don't know. Um, there's some dangers in there, isn't there? I, I really like what Clates is saying there about Lucas having a – and Matt Griffin the same who finished his university degree. That really makes a lot of sense to me. I reckon it takes a lot of pressure off a professional golf career if you have got something else, Clates. Shaq. Uh, uh, yeah. There are, we, you, you're, we could go down quite the rat hole of things mm. that uh, we've seen that are that are not good signs in, in a, lo- a lot of ways. That said, there have been some people who, who succeed of because of uh, the way things are going. So I, I it's – uh, I mean, this is all going to really be upended, I think, by the pandemic in terms of uh, a lot of yeah. different things and how people approach it. So it's going to be something to watch here in the in the coming months. Just travel, Lucas, as you've just found out. Um, yeah, you know, all pro golfers yeah, are those outside the states. It's a uh, brutal, yeah. uh, so, um, tough time being a sort of young pro yeah, from yeah. Australia, particularly. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, well it's, it hasn't, it's been the case for a long time that you couldn't make a living playing professional golf solely in Australia, hasn't it, Clates? And that's more so the case now than at any other time. So uh, you do face a life in planes. Uh, did I miss anything, Clates? Did you have anything else you wanted to quickly ask, well, Lucas? Or my only quick on? question was, D- Dustin Johnson, I think, said this is the greatest tournament in the world. Uh, my question would be to Shaq oh. and Lucas. Um, <laughs> may- maybe it's the greatest sporting event in the world in terms of how it's organised, but... Surely this can't be the most significant and greatest tournament in golf when it sits with the U.S. Open and the British Open. Surely they, surely Bobby Jones would be horrified to think that players were thinking it was more significant than the Open or the the Open or the U.S. Open. Don't, don't we? Or, or, or is it just now mm. become this is the greatest golf tournament in the world now? I mean, maybe it's the greatest tournament in the world in terms of how it's put on and the mystique and how they run it, but. Surely the two opens are more significant championships in terms of things that players want to win. 
Or, 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 or is it now fundamentally changed and now the Masters is seen as being the number one tournament in golf? Hmm. Lucas? <laughs> Anybody want to go back next year? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder though, Shaq, I wonder what Augusta No, I, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ignoring it. I, I don't know. I really, I, I'd have to think about that. It's an interesting comment about Bobby Jones and what he would think. I, I, I just think they put on the best tournament, the most consistent. Uh, I think that's why they get those, those marks and uh, they yeah. seem to have fewer gaffes and, and fewer, uh, I mean, they have their issue. Everybody has their their issues, but I I don't know. We'll have to let, let's ponder that for a podcast episode because I I'd like to think about that some more. It's an interesting. Yeah. It's certainly the one you want to win the most, just because you know you're going to get to come back every year yeah. and well until you're 65. Yeah. And and then they yeah best, best just invite you to dinner. Shaq. So you could you could take Johnson's comment two ways. This is the greatest tournament in the world in terms of it's the greatest how it runs is wow. amazing. But or this is the greatest tournament to win. And they're, t- they're two different things. And I, I assume he meant this is the number one tournament that I wanted to win, which is maybe a personal thing. But You didn't cry when he won the U.S. Open. I think you're also putting a lot of uh, credence into the thoughts of someone who does not think a lot. So I would also offer that rebuttal. But, but I think if you spoke to a lot of players, there would be a lot of players who, if you said put the four majors in order, they would all put the PGA fourth. Yes, but but I think a lot would put the Masters first. When for yes, me, it would, would. You know, for me, it would have to be third behind the two opens. Surely. Well, Lucas, you're of a generation where Augusta National mm-hmm. very cleverly with with the uh, Asia Pacific Amateur and the Latin America Amateur mm-hmm. have created a generation of young golfers outside of the US for whom the Masters is the most accessible of the majors. So it automatically must become mm-hmm. in the minds of some. Early on, uh, it's the one you've got the best chance to get to um, easily enough, and yeah. that's a brilliant marketing move on their part, I think, internationally, and probably underrated at the time. But they put a lot of time, money, and effort investing into that. That'll pay big dividends, I think, in the future. You would know people for whom that Asia Pacific, yeah, is a big deal. Yeah, I'm not sure how much effect that had on me in terms of looking at the Masters as the best sort of way, to, or sorry, looking at the Asia Pacific as the best way to the Masters. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really didn't know about that tournament until probably five or six years ago, just cause I was so far out of that level of golf. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm sure, you know, for young kids now seeing guys that they know going and playing that tournament and winning it, I'm sure that has some effect yeah. in terms of sort of elevating the standard or the status of the masters. The best way into the Masters is be really good at 25 and then enter the U.S. mid-amateur. <laughs> yeah. It's clearly the easiest way. Yeah. Well, it's, probably, it's, it's probably easier than winning the, uh, the, the Asian amateur, isn't it? Would you think? Or, yeah. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's I mean. probably easier than the Asian. I think the Latin isn't the strongest field either. I th- yeah. I'd say the Latin and the mid-am field are probably the two weakest fields to get into the Masters. But, I mean... I'll take what I get. I was going to say, <laughs> hey, somebody's got to win it. Somebody's got to win it. And you yeah. did. And uh, well done to you. Uh, fantastic of you to join us, Lucas. Really appreciate that, mate. Yeah, thank you. I, I know you've got a bunch of other podcasts no coming up because there's not much else to do, but it's been fantastic. I really mean it. It's been fantastic to see the attention that your presence there has uh, attracted. And it's been fantastic of you to take so much time during your preparation to talk to so many different people about it. So kudos to you. It's, uh, it's a job well done. And thanks for chatting to us today, mate. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks a lot. Jeff Shackelford over there in the States. Uh, 
been always great to talk to you, my friend, and I think you're right. We've got a topic for the next podcast episode to think about, so we'll chew on that. But for the moment, we'll, well say yeah, I mean, we do our majors uh, review. There's three or four. We'll, we'll 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 come at it in an interesting way, I'm sure. Oh, no doubt. But we appreciate your uh, interesting insights today. It's been great to catch up. Thank you. Always is. And, Clates, it's always terrific to talk to you, particularly when you're in a good mood because you can gallivant around the place playing any golf course that you choose to again. So nice, mm. to, uh, nice, to, nice to talk to you, mate, and we'll do so again soon, I'm sure. Thank you, Rod. Thanks, Jeff. And I'll see you in a 12 days, Lucas, once you're out of prison up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll be down. Yep. Play some golf. Well, that's right. Play some golf. Exactly. You can get to play. You, you can tell Clades that all the ways he's different to Larry Myers and all the ways he's the same. So that'll be, uh, it'll be lovely to make those direct comparisons. Episode 108 of the State of the Game in the books. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with episode 109 at some point in the future. If you've been, made it this far, you know how it works. We'll catch you then. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.